Now I would request Swamiji to honor Dr. Park with plaque and shawl. Swamiji. And now we will move on to the talk. But again, um, just again, uh, we'll do the quick housekeeping rules here again. Uh, if you have any questions, keep it to yourself. And uh, uh, depending on how much time we will have, we will take some questions. And uh, without any further ado, I need to use it. Yes. 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 Um, do you want to stand? Or? Stand up would be better? Because then I can see everybody. Um, Books, 
which has suggested that symbol zero also existed elsewhere. Um, but that's really quibbling about sign. Uh, zero as a part of the decimal system did uh, come up in India. And we do see its mention in Arvind Rathiriya, in Arvind Madar's book. But it's likely that it came up much earlier, a few centuries earlier, because there is a connection, so to speak, between philosophy and science. Um, a lot of philosophy has followed science. We see Andrew Whitehead's process philosophy coming after relativity theory, for example, in the 20th century. So one might suggest that as the concept of shunyata became very popular in the very first century, it's possible, uh, of course it's surmise, so I'm guessing it, it's possible that the symbol of shunya emerged around that time. So about four or five centuries prior to what is generally believed. And recently the famous Bakshali manuscript, which was being discovered in Northwest Frontier Province 1800 years ago, uh, a page of it was uh, subjected to radiocarbon date testing uh, by a group in UK, and they suggested that rather than 800 or six, 700 CE, it was maybe much older, maybe 200, and that if, if true, that would be totally consistent with what I told you about the symbol zero. But ultimately, the symbol zero is important for mathematical contribution or mathematical computations, but it's not central to science. What is central to science is, first of all, what is this reality? And there are two aspects to this reality. One is the outer reality, right? And the other is the corresponding inner reality. Inner reality is our consciousness, because we are all conscious beings, and we see the outer in our consciousness, right? So, in, in fact, the case can be made, and it is made in Vedanta, that consciousness is the more fundamental thing because it's through our consciousness that we see the outer world. So then the question is, what are the aspects to each one of these two? Uh, which, in which Indian ideas have been critical? Uh, if I don't go back too far, uh, the beginning of the scientific revolution is uh, seen in the works of Newton and Leibniz, and in particular, the invention of infinite series, because then that led to the full flowering of calculus. Before that, there were certain formulas for computation, but you couldn't really do calculus. Uh, now, uh, it's come to light that two or 300 years prior to Newton and Leibniz, in Kerala, there existed a school, which is now called the Kerala School of Mathematics and Astronomy, where infinite series was used, and where one could make the case that calculus was already invented there. Now, there are some historians of mathematics and astronomy in India and elsewhere who claim that the Jesuits took it, because there were Jesuits at that time in southern India, they took it to Europe. And there, these ideas became the kindling, the fire, which led to the flowering of European science. Now, 
Now, we also know that prior to that, uh, I think it was what, 1100 CE, Fibonacci translated or he wrote a book on Indian number system. Um, and as you know, in Bhaskaracharya itself, in the sixth century, spoke about both positive numbers and negative numbers, all those combinations. And uh, it took about 200 years in Europe for Europe to accept the concept of negative numbers. So ideas don't move very, very fast. It was a big, big struggle uh, because the Severus Mines in Europe at that point said that uh, negative numbers were from the devil. So we should not accept them. And, but then eventually they were so useful that people dropped their opposition. So it does take time. And the time that it took for uh, for calculus to flower in Europe, if the theory is right. Now, I'm not saying that I subscribe to the theory that the Jesuits actually took Kerala School of Mathematics uh, results to Europe, but many do. Um, and we also do know that uh, the libraries of the Vatican are not open to all uh, research scholars. So who knows what the facts are. But this is indeed true that uh, uh, if you haven't heard about the Kerala School of Mathematics, it is one of the great achievements of, uh, of uh, humanity. And uh, I believe uh, BBC did a multi-part series on it uh, a few years ago. But sadly, for, question, for reasons that we might want to discuss later on, um, there's not that much of knowledge of it that students are imparted in Indian schools. They don't know about it. Second, and again, this is very widely known, Panani lived about 450 BCE, and Panani's Ashtadhyayi is a set of 4,000 rules, which are algebraic, which describe the entire grammar of Sanskrit exhaustively. And uh, Western scholars and others have argued, and there's no contest on this, that Ashtadhyayi is, 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 is equivalent to a, those of you who are computer science, is equivalent to a Turing machine. It is equivalent to the most powerful computation system. And it can be viewed as a program. It has rules as well as rules about rules, which is what you have in a program. And, and it, uh, Ashtadhyayi, when it was discovered a hundred or 150 years ago, and the Tavdam, she would, of course, corroborate this, it was taken up by some of the brightest people in Europe, like Bissonsior, and it became the foundation of a lot of social sciences. And not just Ashtadhyayi, also Bharata's Natya Shastra, which is not only a manual on acting, but also on music, and also the language of gesture and all. So these became the template for uh, the modern social sciences that have transformed society uh, all over the world. You have anthropology, you look at relationships, sociology, you know, you have relationships, you have grammar to all of that, which is like a grammar of the language. Language is also an expression of human behavior, but so are other uh, expressions in social systems and therefore you could have a corresponding uh, sign for that. Okay, so this is one, uh, um, the, uh, the internet series, and 
foundations of social sciences through Panini and this uh, great commentary, Mahabhashya by Patanjali. Um, and, and of course, the same Patanjali, in the Indian tradition, um, there is only a single Patanjali. The same Patanjali who read Mahabhashya also did the Yoga Sutras. And as we know, Yoga Sutras are in the process of changing man's understanding of what their inner world is all over. Right now, uh, yoga is the biggest, the most powerful phenomenon that you have. Last year in December, I was at this conference, center of soft power, big conference in Delhi. And one of the speakers was this lady from Saudi Arabia who told us how popular yoga has become in Saudi Arabia amongst women and possibly amongst other people as well. In fact, uh, four or five years ago, I was at a conference in California, ran into the advisor to the wife of the ruler of one of the UAE countries. And she said, we want all these ideas to come to UAE and the Arab world, but we cannot do it directly because of the opposition that there would be, opposition because they would think kind of a cultural or religious invasion. We are trying to see how it could be done in a more clever way where we talk about the usefulness for business, for being more productive, and so on. Uh, okay, so what else? Uh, two more little stories. In 1896, the world's most popular actress was a French woman named Sarah Sarah. Sarah Bernard, and she, along with a group or troupe, was visiting New York City. And at that time, uh, the most famous American scientist engineer was Nikola Tesla. So Sarah Bernard throws a party. I guess she was she rented a suite in some hotel in New York City, and she wanted or she invited both Tesla and Vivekananda. Vivekananda was on one of his tours of the US, and she wanted them to get together and talk to each other because Vivekananda was also very famous. And they were closeted together for some time, and the record of what happened is available to us through a letter that Vivekananda wrote to his disciples, and we have a copy of that, and through diary entry that Nikola Tesla made later on as to what had so apparently what Vivekananda told Tesla was that, look, you are trying to transmit energy through wireless. This was one of the big lifelong obsessions of Tesla. Tesla had already won the battle with Edison uh, with regard to whether energy should be transmitted through AC or DC. He was a proponent of AC. Edison was a proponent of DC. And Westinghouse finally adopted AC. So we live in the age of Tesla. Uh, now, uh, but he was trying to go beyond it, and in fact, some people have said that he was the first inventor of the internet because he imagined a situation where energy would be available through to people all through the world, and they would also be able to communicate information through that way, and therefore people would all be connected together. So apparently what Vivekananda told Tesla was this. He says, look, as far as Vedic physics is concerned, 
it should be possible to transform matter into energy. So can you sit down and come up with the equations to transfer matter into energy? And then I'm paraphrasing him and he says, if you do it, not only would you be successful in what you're trying to do, but it will also establish Vedic science on a surer footing in the West and all over the world. Now we do know that Tesla was not able to do it and he was beaten to it by um, not just Albert Einstein in 1905, but there was a French architect two years prior, uh, whose name escapes me now, who wrote a 70-page article, which historians of science have sort of ignored, where he came up with the equation e equal to mc squared. So, uh, uh, of course, Einstein is normally credited with it. Now, you might ask, what is it that Vivekananda had in his mind when he said, this is a part of Vedic physics? Well, we know, and to answer, the, answer this, I will step back sort of a little bit and talk about this Shat Darshana, you know, the six Darshanas of the Vedic system. And these six Darshanas are in complementary pairs of three, right? So what are these six Darshanas? Well, and why are there six? Why aren't there 25 or seven? Well, imagine yourself that you are out in space in a cube, right? So you have six different perspectives on the entire space, which are orthogonal to each other in a cube, right? And they will they will be complementary. What you'll be standing on, which is your tradition, which you, which is your inherited tradition, uh, which you analyze. The deeper you analyze, you will get an understanding of reality, which is called mimamsa schools of Mimamsa, right? Associated with your tradition. And on the ceiling would be Uttar Mimamsa or Vedanta, right? Which tells you what is it all about. On one side, you have analysis of language, right? We communicate with each other through language, and language is also atomic. It has, it has roots, then it has rules of combination of these, right? So that's one side, Nyaya, that's language. On the other side, you have Vaisheshika, which is analysis of matter. Matter and language are complementary. You know, we are, we are, we are body, but we are also speech. That's why Agni in the Vedic hymns is both fire, it's also speech, as we talk, right? Both fire and speech, Agni. So you have Nyaya, and you have Vaisheshika. Then on the other side, you have Samkhya, which is about creation creation both at the personal and the cosmic level. And on the opposite side, you have yoga, which is synthesized, synthesis, right? Coming together. Creation, synthesis, analysis of language, analysis of matter, analysis of questioning of tradition, which is Mimamsa, and, and questioning in its ultimate overarching sense, which is Vedanta, right? So these are uh, the three complements. Then people have known this. Now, in Vaisheshika, I was sort of surprised. I haven't been aware of it for a long time, and I've had some students also write some papers on it. Um, but really, I not deeply thought of it until a few years ago. There was somebody in India, and he wrote to me and said, this 
Chicago Political Institute, together in Central Institute, write uh, a chapter on Indian physics. And so I thought I should study on my own. And I finally translated it. And it's published as a book called Matter and Mind. And I was, first of all, uh, bowled over by the scope of Pranada's Vaisheshika Sutras. Now, I'll tell you very briefly what he says. He says there are six fundamental categories in groups of three. One of these three is Dravya, Guna, and Gana, which means you have, you have substances, you have their attributes, and then you have their motions. So what Kanada says, that everything that you have in physical reality can be computed using substances, which are atoms, their attributes, because these atoms have different properties, and their motion. Just imagine, it's so advanced. It's exactly as advanced as modern science, although people don't know, Indians don't know about it. Even Indian physicists don't know about Kanada's sutras. In fact, in 2016, I was in uh, Ujjain uh, at the last kumbh. They had also put together a big Mela, so to speak, of people from across the world speak about various things. And I gave a talk on Indian science. And I was telling them about this and also about the foundations of quantum mechanics, which I should not forget to tell you. And these people were, this professor of physics walked up to me. He says, Listen, why are you making this up? Why don't you know about this? People don't know, even Indian physicists don't know because we have not not shown enough of a curiosity in recent decades to find out what all this is. So in any way, Kanada has a triangle of this. Then he has another three categories. And these three categories are Samanya, which is universal. There are certain properties which are universal, as we know. And he argues that an atom should be spherical, because from each direction, the observer, it should be the same. So that's a universal property. Then Vishesha, which have particular properties depending upon who the observer is. And the third node is what he calls Samavaya, which is where the inner and the outer meet. The inner is the observer. You know. He's a, our senses are only instruments. But the observer sits behind, wherever. And that's one of the puzzles of modern science. And I will come to that as well. So where they meet is and, and this is the foundational problem of quantum mechanics. Those of you who know physics, since I do also do physics, I can tell you that this is the deepest problem that we have modern science of how, or first of all, why is the observer separate from the observed, and how do the observer and the observed interact with each other. So you have this amazing system, and sadly, neither do physicists in India know about it, and neither, and if they don't know about it, who's going to tell it to the new generation, right? So that, that's a challenge. Now, before I forget, since I already did bring up quantum mechanics, quantum mechanics was created in the 1920s by an Austrian physicist who was a Vedantin named Erwin Schrodinger. Schrodinger used to walk everywhere, wherever he went, with a book of the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. These are two great um, classics of Vedanta in the subtle form. And Schrodinger 
claims in his autobiography, which he wrote at the end of the 60s. He says, the fundamental breakthrough idea which led to the creation of quantum mechanics. And as we know, quantum mechanics is the deepest scientific theory there is. On quantum mechanics is based chemistry and classical mechanics. Chemistry, you have biology, biology you have networks in the brain that leads to consciousness, or almost, not quite. So uh, he says the central idea of quantum mechanics, the breakthrough idea, came to him from the Upanishadic Mahavakya, I am Atma Brahma. That this one can be a superposition of all possibilities. That's the central idea of quantum mechanics, the idea of superposition. And the other central idea of quantum mechanics says that when you observe it, a system, then you can only see one of those super, superposed attributes. Right? So, beautiful, you know, and uh, all the pioneers of quantum mechanics were aware of it. Schrodinger mentions the Vedas again and again. He mentions that in his famous book, Born in Bright, as well, which inspired Francis Crick to do his work on DNA, which he acknowledges in his book. Read Watson, the double helix. He does mention this. So there is this amazing, uh, you know, pathways which go back to Indian ideas. And what I want to do is talk not only about the past, but where <coughs> we stand in the world right now, and where is it that we might be going. Also, want, I also want to add that the other thing in modern science which is at the basis of all the transformative, not all, a lot of the transformative technologies that we have is machine theory, right? Or mathematical logic. Mathematical logic is at the basis of the computer. You know, you have these logic gates, you put them together, you can do various complicated problems related to logic of big systems. And the creation of mathematical logic is laid to the work of three English scientists in the 1850s, and their name were Augustus de Morgan, um, George Boole, and Charles Babbage. In fact, Charles Babbage also created a mechanical engine, which is viewed as the first digital computer, and he called it the analytical engine. They recreated. He didn't actually make it, but he said this is how it will be made. Now, George Boole died, I think, in the 1860s or 1870s. And George Boole's wife was one Mary Boole, who was a well known science writer in the 1970s. Now, Mary Boole wrote an essay in, I think, it was 1890, not 90, 1898, something, where she claimed that, look, Everybody is felicitating my husband, my dead husband, and Charles Babbage and Augustus de Morgan for the creation of mathematical logic. But in reality, they learned it from her uncle, George Everest, who was the surveyor general of India for many, many years, and Mount Everest is named after him. And he would come to England from time to time. And these three young men were a part of his intellectual circle. So she claimed, for whatever it's worth, that 
they learned their stuff from George Everest, and it was really an Indian idea. In the 20th century, now what Indian ideas, you might ask? Well, I had mentioned Nyaya, right? One of the six rationals is Nyaya, which is Indian logic. And these are all Shastra, these are all sciences. Where India has failed in the last 67 years, that it's given up on all Indian traditions, including Indian sciences. This is, these are not religious, they don't have to believe anything. They're all totally logical. So in Bihar, well, since you're from Bihar, in Bihar, primarily in Bihar, in Mithila, arose the tradition of Nakya Nyaya about a thousand years ago, 1200 years ago. And Nakya Nyaya, brilliant minds, and they created a whole edifice, which, according to all the scholars there are, Western scholars like Fritz Stahl and many others, argue is exactly equivalent to mathematical logic. Uh, so, even this, this is when, in the 19th century, when India was in the depths of misery, depths of misery caused by the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of mankind from India to UK, because in 1800, when the British first established a foothold in India, India's share of the world economy was 25%, according to comparative economists. In 1914, 114 years of British rule, India's share of the world economy had shrunk to 1.4%. So during, now of course you might ask, what did they do? Did they break into the temples or the forts and steal the money? No, they did it two ways. Uh, first of all, that was the time that the Industrial Revolution was taking off in Britain. So they didn't allow investments in India for factories to be formed in India. And they made India a place where they could export their goods. And they placed crushing taxation on different sectors of Indian economy so that Indian economy was completely destroyed. And now, look at how powerful America is. Everybody wants to come to this shiny city on the hill, and America's share of the world economy is 17%. India's economy in 1800 was 25%. India was very wealthy, even though 1800 itself, there had been a few centuries of strife. In spite of that, India was doing reasonably well. So what happened after 1800? Uh, first of all, they destroyed Indian old schools, as you know from the famous book by Dharampal. Literacy was 60-70%. People have estimated. Uh, it wasn't the highest level of education, but it was almost universal. By the time the British left, literacy had plummeted to 2 or 3%. Uh, because there were no jobs. There were no jobs. People had no motivation to even get literate. Uh, so the only jobs that there were in most of India were jobs of cooks, right? Cooks, they worked servants at home. And therefore, they you call them Maharaj. You know, what could you do? These guys, they're probably very smart, but then this is all that there was to be done. So in that period, Indians lost their belief or faith in themselves. They 
thought, you know, just like when the market is going down, you look at the past three days, then you imagine that it's going to go down forever and ever. So Indians looked at their past five generations, they thought that this is how they had been forever and ever, because people didn't quite know what the things were before. And they needed um, confirmation by the outsider until such time that this renaissance began, perhaps through Ramakrishna, Swami Ramakrishna, Shivanandaji, Swami Shivananda, Vivekananda, and then in the first few, few decades of the 20th century, there were some very great physicists who played a pivotal role in world science. You had J.C. Bose. In fact, I was on 30th of November, I was in Calcutta delivering the J.C. Bose, 81st J.C. Bose Memorial Lecture. J.C. Bose, as you know, now has been credited by IEEE as the inventor of wireless. Uh, it wasn't Mark Mooney, it was him. He also did amazing work on physiology. Uh, you had S.C. S.M. Bose, uh, Boson. You know, half the particles in the universe are Boson, half are fermions. So, he, as you know, the history is that he sent his he sent his paper for publication and they rejected it. He didn't have a PhD. And finally, in desperation, he sent it to Einstein. Einstein sat on it for a year or a year and a half and finally translated it and also added a section. And it was published. And because he had added uh, an appendix or something, so the statistics that SN Bose proposed were called Bose Einstein statistics. Actually, they were Bose statistics. But we should also thank Einstein for having facilitated the publication of that paper by S.N. Bose. And there are many others. But somehow after 47, um, uh, the ideas of the left, and I'm not a critic of the left. Left also has very important things to offer to foreign analysis. You know, you need analysis from many different sides. But the ideas of the left became so totally dominant in India because you had this whole bureaucratic system of education control that only certain ideas were to be permitted, so to speak. And these powers to be concluded that possibly uh, ideas related to India's own <laughs> tradition could be misconstrued or in fact, uh, I must tell you this. Uh, in 2006, I was invited at Harvard to give a big talk. And then later on, I ran into Kapila Vaisayan. And I think you know Kapila Vaisayan was this amazing scholar of Indian arts. And I was in Delhi. So she said, you know, I heard about your talk. But the listeners thought that there was a sense of triumphalism which is, of course, not the case. You know, when you're saying that, oh, hey, you had the Indians had this, uh, and this and that, we are not putting anybody down. We are just trying to be factual. This is what the story is. And why it happened was because very early on, the Vedic Rishis realized that you, by turning inwards, since consciousness is fundamental, by turning inwards, you can obtain a lot of knowledge, which is all what Jnana, meditation is all about, which is why you also have the story of Srinivas Ramanujan, for example. Uh, creativity, where does creativity come from? It doesn't 
come from outside. You cannot train a computer to be creative because that will only at most be inductive or incremental. And creation, artistic creation is never inductive. It is out of the box. It's not within the box in which all the rest of the information is stored. It's out of the box. So let me quickly tell you uh, what then Vedanta is. My claim is that Vedanta is that Kamadhenu, uh, or Kalmavriksh, which keeps on giving everything emerges from it. Or consciousness, Chaitanya for example, is that eternal source of insight which uh, illuminates what we do, which illuminates not only our minds, but also allows us to go beyond where we stand at a certain point in time. So, uh, so that's where it comes from. And um, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you the story, and I don't want to repeat myself. I was telling uh, uh, Prabhupada and Raj that every lecturer has only one lecture in him. And I already gave one lecture in the morning, so I was very terrified. Am I going to repeat myself? Because I would hate doing it. But there is one story I must repeat. And that story is related to uh, one of the central uh, mystical numbers that we have in the Vedic tradition. And that is the number 108, right? You all know about 108, names of the goddess, 108. One zero eight names of the god. One zero eight names of the goddess, right? Um, and uh, one zero eight pilgrimages, right? One zero eight. In the Vaishnav tradition, you have one zero eight temples in South India, right? So, what is this number one zero eight? This number was people didn't quite know. People said maybe it's twenty seven nakshatras times four. This is generally what the answer would be you would ask people. So the story which I told morning in the morning, and I'm sorry I'm going to repeat it, <laughs> was that, and I, I want to give you an example of how creativity occurs. It doesn't occur through the person. It comes from somewhere. That's what I want to focus on. It doesn't, if you think you are the creator, you are delusional, or one is delusional. So I was reading the New York say by John Updike, there was something about the sun and the moon, and suddenly the idea flashed into mind that it has everything to do with the very structure of the ritual, the great Agnichan ritual of the Vedic times. You know, the kings used to have this Agnichan ritual. It's still done in Kerala uh, from every 12 years or 60 years, I don't know when exactly. So 1,000 bricks are piled into five layers in the shape of a falcon. Falcon represents time. So the whole idea behind the Agnichayan ritual is to communicate the mystery of time, mystery of outer time and inner time. What is the mystery of outer time? Well, this, the solar year and the lunar year have different lengths. The lunar year is 354 plus days, and the solar year is 365 plus days. There's a difference of 11 days there. 
And that's why you have to have public mass every five years, there's a Yuga Pai and so on. So that's one. Then, if you read Aurobindo, for example, writing in the 1920s, amazing. Uh, a two-hemispheric structure of the brain was discovered, I think, in the 1970s. That you have the left hemisphere, the right hemisphere, the left hemisphere is rational, the right hemisphere is emotional, uh, more intuitive, right? And, and a lot of other things were discovered through research in neuroscience. Writing in the 1920s, Aurobindo says, there are two parts of the mind. One is left, the other is right. He uses categories which are exactly identical to what you find in brain science literature, which happened 50 years later. And people are aware of it because I read about it in a book on the hemispheric parts of the brain where they quoted Aurobindo, right in the 1920s. So, uh, so you have the sun and the moon outside you also have the sun and the moon inside. See, that's the whole idea. In the Purusha Sukta, for example, you have Chandrama Manaso Jatai, right? Chakshu uh, Ajayana, Surya Chakshu Ajayana, right? So there is a parallel between the outer sun and the moon and the inner sun and the moon. And now we know through the science uh, of biological cycles that every cell in the body has uh, clocks, and these clocks are either tuned to the moon, moon's period, or to the sun's period. And when did they discover it? In the 1970s, they sent these volunteers into deep caves. They didn't have any watches, and they, they were given food. They had no idea of time. When they came out for six months, their idea of how many days had elapsed was wrong by five days. Because in six months, there would be a gap of five. Right? In, in a year, there's a gap of 11 days. So they were keeping time. You know, our, our clocks reset because sun rises every morning. If the sun didn't rise, our count of days will be by the motions of the moon. And it's those motions of the sun and the moon in our mind, if we know how to synchronize that, this is part of the meaning. There are many, many layers of meaning I could go for days to tell you of how, what, how, what is the deeper coded stuff in the Vedas. But at a very superficial level, if you know how to synchronize the motion of the sun and the moon as in your own uh, processes, you would be more effective. Then you would be in touch. You will be able to reach that harmonious ground, that balance. And it's that balance, when you're balanced, it's like all the vrittis on the mind's lake, right? Chitta vritti. They are calm. And when they're all calm, then the sun of inner illumination shines forth. And therefore, then you have access to extraordinary, extraordinary so this is what the Rishis were trying to say. And so what um, I found, I, I, I looked up the sun and the moon, I discovered, and I was to publish it in many, many journals, both in the East and the West, and in a book called the Astronomical Code of the Rig Veda. 
where they, the Rishis found that the sun and the moon are 108 times their respective diameter from the Earth. And now we know from modern science, modern astronomy, that the diameter of the sun is 108 times the diameter of the Earth. Right? So what the Rishis were trying to teach everybody, because the whole idea of the Vedic way is, you, you are like, and say, we are all birds, if I may use that, you know, take the liberty of imagining that we are birds and we are not human beings. We are birds caught up in the nettles of, of a brush, and we are trying to climb up. But since there are brush and leaves all around, we can't see very clearly, but if we could climb up and break loose, then we'll be able to fly. And then when you fly, we'll see everything. Maybe we can call that Samadhi. Um, so, um, as you climb up, and you, that climbing is that process of, of yajna, sacrifice. The Shatapata Brahmana tells us that you have the outer sacrifice, but that's really some kind of sacred theater. The real sacrifice is within, because there is, that fire is speech. I've told you, if you read Rig Veda 1.1, Agni, Vide, Purohitam, etc. Agni is both the outer fire and the inner fire. And there are all these little clues that are given. Now, uh, very, very quickly, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, what the other parameters of this discovery were. The very organization of the Rig Veda is a total of 1,017 hymns, which is 39 times 3. And if you have a circle with a radius of 108, from sunrise to sunset, or moonrise to moonset, you'll have 108 times 5, which is 339. And in fact, in the great Agnichev ritual, there were, there were three kinds of altars. There was this circular altar, which represents the earth. Then there were half-circular altars, which represented the pranas, or the atmosphere. You know, bhu, bhuva, swaha. Who is the earth, which is your body? Bhuva is the atmosphere or the pranas, and swaha is the heavens, swarga, for example, or the sun. So there were 261 uh, pebbles around the big square altar, which represented the skies or the heavens, and 13 times 6 around the, uh, the atmosphere altars, which is 78. 261 plus 78 is 339. I told you that number, 239. And not only that, the total number of syllables in all the Vedic books combined together is, if I remember right, 261 times 78 something. So there were all these interlocking numbers and all these astonishing details, which you can read up. They are all on the open <coughs> journals, which you can read without spending any money on it. But you can also see them in my book, The Astronomical so in other words, all of this is astonishing knowledge which is telling you something. It's like when you read, when you see the image of Ganesha riding his mount, a rat, basically, you know what that image is for? It's to make you question, what does it really mean? Because a big-bellied Ganesha could not be riding his rat, right? Rat is not that hard. So there's, you have, the whole idea of the Vedic way is to make you question, because the answers are within you. 
A Vedic way is totally opposite to the modern way. In the modern way, modern pedagogical system is that education is all about information. You know, just memorize this and that and that, which is ridiculous because now all information is there, available to you at your fingertips, right? Google, why, why do this? Kids don't want to memorize stuff <coughs> for very good reason. The Vedic way is that the mind is a flame to be lit. It's not a vessel to be filled. It's a flame to be lit. And once that flame is lit, then everything becomes clear, because then you can see out. And another way of looking at it, to use the classic Vedantic story, or which was copied by Schrodinger again and again, because he was trying to make this case, is that if that there is a single Purush, right? Purush is one. There's a single consciousness which gets reflected in each one of us, but in each one of our minds, because of this process of desire, which is this veil of Maya, we associate ourselves just with our body. And so what we are trying, what we are doing is we are taking this light, infinite light that each one of us possesses and surround and cover it through various layers of covering, which layers are a consequence of our sanskaras. Now this is something that would probably surprise you. The sanskaras are great thing. We want sanskaras, you know, good ways of seeing. But each good way of seeing also obscures other ways of seeing. Then you can only see that. Each good way of seeing is very narrow. So who was it? One of the one of India's leading musicians, she told me, she says, she spent many, many years learning at the feet of her guru, and after she graduated, so to speak, then she spent many years unlearning what she had learned. So good education is ultimately unlearning ways and then uncovering new ways of seeing reality. So where do we stand now? We stand at the most frightening and scary part a moment in human history. Why? Now you might say, isn't that being too uh, exaggerate too much hyperbolic, right? Because look at human history, full of bloody conflict, century after century, people dying, massacred, all countries. But there still was hope at that time. Every generation lived for the subsequent generation. Everybody had hope. People were dying, but they were still living for tomorrow. The Upanishads tell us the most powerful thing that there is in this world is Asha, is hope. Right? I think Chandogya speaks of that. So there was hope. And then when the Industrial Revolution took place a hundred years ago, uh, we didn't need all this brawn power. right? So machines could do a lot of this stuff. So you didn't need people to do agriculture. You could have tractors do it, and slowly that has changed the whole world. But then people moved to the cities, and new work arose, work associated with keeping of information and making judgments, who will get what, and so on. So if to an outsider or to somebody hovering on a helicopter, somebody might have said, hey, but isn't this boring work? All that you're doing is entry, making entries in these registers. But you know, work is always boring, but then that also provides satisfaction. And so people had families, and then the next generation came along, but 
now there is all inequality. Two things. Science of reproduction, technology which makes it possible for people to not have babies, right? That has become widespread. Second, AI, pervasive automation. Uh, so um, wherever human beings, they are making judgments, machines are going to do that for us. And that will happen at an increasing pace. And people already know it. I know a lot of young people, my children, classmates, nobody wants to settle down. They don't, they don't know what's going to happen. And uh, so it's not, it's a kind of a difficult time. And that is indeed true. I used to tell uh, my students, the very first lecture, I would tell them, hey, why are you in this class? Because all that I'm going to tell you is freely available on the internet. There are these MIT courses. And there's a good lecture. You can listen to this all. And then they would say, yeah, we know it. But we are here, first of all, two things. One is to listen to stories. And second is, we want this credentials. We want this certificate. This is their job. But now those jobs are going to go away. There are very few of those engineering jobs. In India, two years ago, 500 private engineering colleges shut down in just one year. And according to Dave Christensen of Harvard Education, uh, right? That's what his name is. Ashish, we're talking about his name. Half the colleges and universities in the US are going to go bankrupt in the next 20 years. So most jobs will go away. So the world stands on the threshold of something totally of unexpected proportions. Right? It could be scary. It is scary. People know it. That's why you have, uh, what, 70,000 people killing themselves opioid overdose two years ago, 2018. Why are people doing this all? Because of two reasons. Until recently, uh, one could say that the West had its own tradition related to the spirit. Right or wrong, we don't want to go into details. We don't want to discuss it. But there was something. And certainly I, as a uh, reader of books, can tell you that I can relate to the first 14 presidents of the U.S., they, have, they seem very enlightened. You know, they're talking about larger matters. Or you go to Roman writers, you read people like Marcus Aurelius, they look as if you could converse with them. Why? Because they saw reality as that complex interplay between the spirit and the body. But in the last 50 years, modern world, even the church, has abandoned the spirit. They just tip their hat to it. In reality, everything is for the body. So young people in schools and colleges, after they've lived through all that there is to be lived through in terms of senses, they ask themselves. They may not actually articulate this. They ask themselves, what is life all about? And they give up. And it's a terrible thing. And that is happening on an increasing level. So, uh, and I was part of, uh, I was part of a group in the U.S., uh, some scientists, uh, uh, this big SRI project, and the question was, which was tasked, we were tasked to ask, tasked to answer the question, will computers of the future become conscious? Maybe not 10 years from now, maybe 50 years from now, 20 years from now. And half of them, these were some of the world's leading scientists, half of them said yes, they will become so in other words, a lot of people believe 
all that there is to consciousness is just this complex activity in the brain. Now, I personally don't believe in that, and that's totally opposite Vedanta. That's also in contradiction to the orthodox interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is called the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, according to which the observer and the observed are forever apart, which is why these great scientists were so strongly attracted to, uh, to Vedanta. So I see very quickly what I see happening over the next five or six or eight decades, more than religious war or religious conflict, will be the disruptive forces unleashed by technology, by AI. It will disrupt everything. And societies will have to scramble to deal with it. Uh, in, in 100 years, rather than 10 billion people, uh, the world will be able to support in meaningful ways maybe just a billion people. So the number of opportunities will shrink, and as economies shrink, there will be all kinds of other complications that arise. Of course, there are people who say, well, jobs might go away and new jobs will be formed. There will be new coding jobs in AI. Not so many. You know, you don't need so many people doing AI. So a few, certainly. There would be some new jobs, and then in all creative tasks, you'll still need people. So what will happen? The next hundred years or the next millennium will be Vedanta. Be, this world will reopen just as 500 years ago, Europe, through its explorers like Magellan and Columbus and others, explored the new world. And that's where Europe's energy went in. And they, they got a great payoff. Europe was primitive in terms of science until that time, it was far behind India. So they got all this capital, they set up these universities, and then they did very well. So what's gonna happen now is that humanity will rediscover something that is there for all of us, and with us all the time, namely our own consciousness. We, everybody is conscious, but they're not aware that they're conscious. And that's where, first of all, the old, Big structures will collapse. Big structures like, I'm gonna give you a computer analogy. Uh, 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, there used to be one huge computer, right, in a university. And then you would book your time and do some calculation. But now, everybody has his own machine, much more powerful than that big computer. So likewise, rather than all these big universities, we have small groups. You know, like that old Gurukul system. People learning uh, and trying to be self-actualized, to discover their own potential, to be who each one of us is really supposed to be. Each one of us is very special. We have a special destiny. Why we are unhappy is because we are separated from that potential which will take us to that special destiny. You know, the word dis-ease or disharmony. Uh, when the doshas are not in harmony, that's when you fall sick, right? So all the, what are the most difficult diseases of the day? They are all diseases related to stress, to lifestyle, because everybody is stressed out. Everybody is doing things that they hate. They meaning maybe 95% of people don't. So I think what people will be trying to do, or what society will have to readjust, will be to 
create jobs and occupations where they will be in touch with their own being. And that will change the whole world. And the people who can show it, because it's not, it's easy enough to say that this is what it is, that there is the same infinite source within you. But you've got to know it in your bones. And I think people who know it in their bones are we, the inheritors of Sanatan Dharma. You know, this is Sanatan Dharma. So I think the next century or millennium will be Sanatan Dharma's century in the millennium. And we will, but, but we cannot achieve that unless we strive. Because you might ask, hey, if you have all this wisdom, why is India in not that poor anymore. I mean, going there very often, India is progressing um, physically as well. But still, why hasn't India done as better than what it has? Because we have forgotten what it is. Um, let me also uh, touch upon, yeah, let me come back to this whole question of consciousness. You know, computers are not conscious. And certainly, in my view, they won't be conscious. And in the view of many other fine scientists, I would say the ones who believe they won't be conscious are very fine scientists. <laughs> so, but then the question would be, how does the conscious world interact with the unconscious world or material world, right? And this is the fundamental question. Is the world, is there duality or is there unity? Um, are we all machines? If we are machines, and certainly we all believe in science. If we all believe in science, then why do we have free will? This is the dilemma of free will. So where does free will come in from? And according to Vedanta, or according to Kashmir Shaivism, we are talking about Kashmir Shaivism, which is one way of speaking of Vedanta, which arose in Kashmir. It speaks of divinity as Atman. It's called consciousness, Chaitanya. Uh, Chaitanya is free. Fundamentally, they are free. Because the Western view would be uh, consciousness is a epiphenomenon. It emerges through the activity in the brain, but it's all instinctual. If it's all instinctual, then we are not free. Then we are only as free as, let's say, an animal is free. But according to Vedanta, we are driven by instincts. We are also Pashu. A Pashu doesn't have freedom beyond a certain level. Those of us who are Pashu, we know that they are really like us. Ways. But they are, their, their freedom is sort of limited, right? They can't, they can't do math, for example. They don't know what square root, square root is. Uh, I'm joking, right? But according to Shaiva Siddhanta, right? This is, this is one expression of Vedanta. We are all Pashu because we are tied to our nature, which is Pasha. We are bound through Pashas to our nature. And if we find that true freedom which resides within each one of us, who is Pashupati, then we are free. Then those Pashas are cut. Then we are Shiva, you know, Shivoham. That's when we are Shiva, because Shiva represents consciousness. Now, beautifully, my late friend and the leading physicist of the last hundred years, from Kerala, George Sudarshan, who is a Vedantin, if you don't know that. So George Sudarshan in 1974 wrote a paper where he argued how through the process of observation alone, and the title of the paper, if I remember right, is 
the quantum genome effect. Through the process of observation alone, you can change the dynamics of the system. You can change the outcome of the system. And the quantum genome effect has been verified in the lab. So this is a big, in the last 10, 20 years, a lot of labs, including Cornell, has shown that indeed observation can change the dynamics of the system. Now, um, the triumphalism that uh, people have accused me of in the past. Uh, let's look at uh, Indian thought. You know, it's so extraordinary. You are astonished. It, it, there's nothing in the world like this. And when I say there's nothing like in the world like this, there are many Western uh, scholars and savants who have also said this. There's nothing in the world like evolution. You know, like Emerson, Thoreau, Schopenhauer, and many, many others. You know, it's changed our lives and so on. Listen to this. The host discussion in India itself, how does Ishvara change the world or your tapasya, tapas or whatever, how does it change the world? Because there is rita, rita means laws. <laughs> the Vedas say everything is by law. If there's everything by law, then where is the place for divinity, <laughs> right? Valid question. So a long time ago, in Vedantic circles in India, a theory came along, and it's called Drishti Srishti Vada. That through Drishti, through observation, uh, Shiva or Vishnu, whatever name you give to divinity, through observation alone, <coughs> divinity changes the world. Thus, Srishti. So it's not that divinity has to take the form of a mechanical system like us. Observation alone. Just imagine, isn't this amazing that this advanced thought, which nobody had even had the sense of imagining that there could be a question like this, had emerged and a solution given. And not only in, in South India, Rishri Sishtivada as a formal system was discussed in South India three or four hundred years ago, but prior to that, Shiva. Uh, Shiva is both in the city and not in the city. He's both a Grihasthi and not a Grihasthi. You know, he's that in the shadows. He's in the shadows because our consciousness is always in the shadows. We, if we really analyze ourselves, we can also say that we are nothing but prisoners to our thoughts. Whatever we do is a consequence of the chain, the karmic chain that has been set up. Moksha, what is moksha? It's not next birth. Oh, I'm not, I'm not called uh, someone who's challenging you know, old authority. Moksha is in this birth itself. Moksha is when you break that karmic chain and are in touch with the self within. That's when you have infinite potential given to you. Then you're not bound. Normally you're bound by whatever has happened in the past. Partly through your own life journey, and also partly as we now know from biology, through epigenome, right? Epigenome governs a lot of our attitudes. And so we can be free of that, and only we have the capacity to be free of that through introspection, through calming those vrittis. And then once they are calmed, then suddenly you are reborn. That's what rebirth is. You are reborn, and then you are reborn you know, totally golden, you know, 
current pollution. You are reborn and you have access to all kinds of extraordinary understanding and insight. And that moment is the moment of creativity. Another, before I conclude, another interesting uh, insight related to it. One of the most popular uh, popular practices, spiritual practices in India, especially in the South, and in um, certainly Andhra Pradesh and in Tamil Nadu and other states as well, and certainly in Greece as well, is uh, the spiritual practice related to Sri Yantra. Right? You know what Sri Yantra is. Sri Yantra are these nine triangles which represent three parts of the body, which are which map to the earth, atmosphere, and uh, and the skies. And there is a lot of esoteric and beautiful, beautiful stuff which we don't have time to discuss right now. And these nine triangles are mapped, uh, and in the middle, and they represent prakriti. They represent both prakriti at the cosmic level and also at the personal, you know, personal level near the body. And that has these three uh, steps as well, or three divisions as well. Now, and, and there are these uh, uh, Mahasaraswati, Mahalakshmi, etc., right in the middle. As you go, as you make your journey from the outer uh, perimeter, which represents our gross senses, and as you turn inwards, then you slowly access all these special uh, uh, insights related to each of uh, these uncoverings, so to speak, of yourself. And, but this is all prakriti. Right in the middle of the Sri Yantra is an infinitesimal drop. And that infinitesimal drop is Shiva. And what it's trying to tell you is that the more you look for Shiva, the less you find it. Shiva is not to be found. Because Shiva is you. You cannot turn your gaze on yourself. Just imagine what subtle insight. All of the stuff in the Puranas, Vedas, etc., is such beautiful, beautiful uncoverings, so to speak, of the very nature of our being. And all of it is there for you to discover the powers that lie latent, for you to metaphorically be able to fly, as Patanjali uh, says in the, the last father. Uh, as in the, the Kaivalya state, you know, where you're flying by yourself, because after all, there is only one, and at that moment, you are that one. So that's where the Kaivalya comes from. And, um, and, and once, you, and, and then also, what has lacked, and this is my last thought that I'm going to present to you, what has lacked in India, and what we are now ready for, we have had mantra and dharma. We have had mantra and dharma. Everybody, you know, I remember my my grandfather. Uh, my father was uh, uh, was orphan, but uh, his adoptive father, uh, you know, knew his pujama hours in the morning. You know, you would find them. These are wonderful people growing up in Kashmir. Such wonderful people of wisdom. But there was one thing lacking, which. The Buddha was aware, or his followers were aware. That's why I turn to you. <laughs> he said three principles. Buddham sharanam gachami, which is like mantram sharanam gachami. 
which is like but the third element, the Hindu, the Vedic way I know Sankhya. And the Sankhya now is not just us in the Chaitanya, uh, in the Chennai edition, but and not just us in the US, or not just us in India, but all of humanity. Because the whole humanity, the whole world at this point, is a global village facing unprecedented dangers related to its very being. And I think what is needed right now is people showing them the way. Showing them the way of Asha, of hope. And that hope is not just Veda, because I can speak here for 10 hours and I give you so much of evidence which shows that indeed it's this light within you. It's that Prakash as um, in the Sri Shaivism. Prakash with Swatantri. So that Prakash within, that is that power in Isha Vasu worship. You have this Prakash which illuminates not just our minds, but must at this point in time illuminate all those who, for whatever reason, uh, have lost hope because um, everybody, the media, the news stories, the books are telling them that they are nothing but bodies. If they are nothing but bodies, then they are mortal, then probably life is not worth living for. Because what we are all living for is something beyond mortality. And what is that beyond mortality? That is where the Vedas 